Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and this year is the International Year of Glass. And June's Physics World magazine is a special issue relating to the science and technology of glass. So it will become as no surprise to you to learn that this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast is all about glass and, for the most part, about the uses of glass technology in healthcare. For many of us, we might not think of glass beyond windows and the things that we drink out of, but the International Year of Glass is there to make us think about it a bit more deeply. Think fibre optics, mobile phone screens, solar cells. And the Physics World magazine is full this month of some fascinating features and articles, not least one by James Dacey, a journalist who, well, to be perfectly honest, without whom this podcast would just sit on my computer, which I'll remind you to look at at the end of this podcast. But first, here's Julian Jones, Professor of Biomaterials in the Department of Materials at Imperial College London. Yeah, bioglass is a special type of glass, and it's special because uh, when you put it in the body, it sort of has special powers in that it starts to dissolve and actually tells cells to get active and produce new bone. You put glass into the body and it speaks to your body and tells the bones <laughs> what to do. That's not what I thought glass did. It's more like it sends out signals and the signals are quite simple, actually. They're just ions that are naturally found in the body. So, uh, But if you put um, window glass in the body, assuming it was clean, uh, the body would see it as a foreign object and it would isolate it and start to push it out and just like if it was a splinter that if you have a splinter that doesn't get infected it'll push itself out a few years ago uh, all biomaterials were designed or chosen uh, in order to have the minimal reaction from the body as possible so people were choosing uh, things like metals that were as corrosion resistant as possible like titanium or, or even stainless steel but when you put those sort of nearly inert materials in the body, they get isolated by scar tissue and sealed off from the rest of the body and eventually forced out. So bioglass was invented in order to form a bond to the host tissue. So it's an interesting story, actually. The, the person who invented it was called Larry Hench. And he was on a, a, a at a conference, as academics are sometimes. And uh, he he got on the bus to the conference dinner. And there was one seat available and he sat down and started talking to the uh, to the person there. And he was an army major, just come back from Vietnam. He started talking to him and he thought, well, this is no time like the present to try and uh, promote his research and try and get some money out of the US Army because that's where all the funds were in the US back then for research. So he started talking about his work on electroceramics, uh, which were for radiation protection and uh, and things like that. And the major actually stopped him and said, look, I've just come back from Vietnam. Um, I've heard enough of, uh, of things like this. Um, I've just seen situations where we, we have casualties in the field and while away from hospitals. And while we can save their lives, we can't save their limbs. You're talking about these materials for extreme environments. Can't you design one that will um, survive in the body? Uh, and what he meant by that was you know, not be rejected. So Harry Hench took that as a challenge. He went back to his lab and he came up with bioglass. It seems a bit of a funny thing to come up with, uh, bearing in mind you don't think about putting glass in your body in order to fix bones. Uh, but he was thinking of the idea of uh, something that can deliver lots of calcium 
and some phosphate, which is what our bone minerals are made up with. And it just so turned out that um, this bioglass, when it goes in the body, it, it does release calcium, it does release some phosphate. And they combine together to form natural bone mineral. And that's the way the body sort of sees it as part of it, uh, part of the body rather than as a foreign object. So that's the reason it bonds to bone. And that this actual sort of telling the cells what to do is more about just these ions that are coming out. So the silica that comes out and the calcium, they, uh, they tell the bone cells to get active and produce new bone. How did he make it? How do you make it? You make it just like how you would window glass, uh, where you would take some clean sand, you take some uh, sodium carbonate, you take some calcium carbonate, some phosphate, and you mix these powders together and you just melt them down uh, the temperature of lava and you pour it out into some water and you get a glass frit, which you grind into uh, into particles. And that's exactly how it's used uh, most commonly in clinical use, just a white powder that the surgeon will take and mix with blood of a bone defect and press it back into the defect. So it's literally a granular glass powder. The, the surgeon would take a little sachet, a bit like a, one of those UHT milk sachets, uh, open it up and use the powder. They probably mix some blood from the patient into the sachet, stir it up with a, uh, with a spatula, and then literally push it into the hole in bone. And it'll start doing its stuff, start dissolving, the bone will start growing between the particles. Because it's uh, it starts dissolving and starts biodegrading, it, it, it'll, it'll go within a certain period of time, depending how it's used, usually within a year. Okay. And if you think about how uh, you know, a bone fracture fixes itself usually within six weeks, but you, know, you wouldn't use this for regular bone fractures. It's when you've got big holes. They need a bit more time to repair. They need a framework to grow around. So... Uh, yeah, they, they degrade over time gradually, but um, over about a year is about right. Is there a reason why it's glass rather than rubber or plastic or something? <laughs> That's a good question. The reason it works well as a gla- in the form of a glass now is because the glass network, the silica network that makes up glass, is great in that um, the ions like calcium just sit in the glass network and so as the glass starts to dissolve, it releases the ions in, in kind of in their pure form. Whereas if you took, let's say you took a, um, a compound containing calcium, then there'd be other things attached to it, like know, calcium chloride or calcium carbonate, or you, know, you haven't got sort of the, the, just the calcium ions on its own. So the benefit of the glass is as it dissolves, it releases the ions without anything else attached to them. And the glass dissolves at quite a useful rate. You can, you can decide how fast it degrades, but the original bioglass is already pretty good at sort of releasing these ions over time so it sort of continually feeds the cells as they're doing their repairing how do you design the rate at which it dissolves well actually the the one that's used most widely right now is the one that larry hench invented right in his lab on on the first day of trying Uh, but you can change the the rate of release of the ions and there's different ways of doing that you can just change the composition The, the beauty of a glass over something like a ceramic, is that you can have almost any amount of silica and any amount of calcium in there just by what you mix together in the first place. But um, but you can do other things as well as just changing the particle size, um, changes the, the, the rate it degrades. Obviously, the original um, conversation was about 
battlefields. Is it something that's that transportable? Could it be taken into war zones? Yeah, it can go anywhere. It's just a you know, a glass is pretty stable and um, until you get it wet in this case. So as long as it stays dry in its little container, then yeah, it's got a great shelf life and go anywhere. Um, um, I mean, you, you find it well, while it was originally designed for uh, um, fixing patients and and, uh, and military personnel. It's uh, now you can find it in tubes of toothpaste because it dissolves and releases this calcium and phosphate and triggers mineralization. I mean, your teeth are made of exactly the same stuff bones made of. So if, if you, you know, tap your tooth, that's a, that is uh, calcium phosphate mineral. Um, it's actually more mineral on your teeth than there is in the bones. Um, but the reason you have sensitive teeth would be because you've got ways in which the hot or cold or whatever it is can uh, reach your nerve cavities, which are underneath the enamel or uh, in usually the tubules in the dentine underneath that go into your nerve cavity. So if you, um, if you brush your teeth with bioglass, then releases calcium phosphate and mineralizes the tooth with natural uh, natural mineral that's normally there on your teeth. You brush your teeth in the toothpaste containing bioglass and out comes the calcium, out comes the phosphate and, and you get mineralization. So that bioglass in toothpaste is certainly only in a couple of brands. And not too long ago, I broke my leg. There was no mention of bioglass then. I wondered how commonly it's used in healthcare. Hospitals have access to it. Um, it's not hugely widely used in the UK. Um, it's used a lot in the US. And, uh, and actually, Finland has a huge activity in, in treating patients with bioglass. And they've had huge success in a really important area, which is um, where you've got deep bone infections. So it's called osteomyelitis, which is uh, where you have bone infections sort of in the marrow cavity. And uh, sometimes that doesn't respond to the antibiotics we have available. So it's a very well-known problem. It's uh, antimicrobial resistance. So uh, so what they did is they actually took the bioglass and they, they packed it into, the, into these bone defects where there was infection. And the infection went away. Uh, they, they did continue to administer antibiotics, but these are things that were not going away under the usual course of antibiotics. When you add bioglass into the mix, it did. So why is it the UK not using this? I mean, there are people in the UK using it, um, using the the conventional bioglass. Um, As to why it's not used more, you could say, well, the short story is probably related to NHS purchasing. The longer story goes back to the beginning of when they started to commercialise bioglass and the fact that it wasn't a great business success right at the beginning. They kind of missed a few tricks, uh, the company that was first founded. And uh, so things like other calcium phosphate ceramics started getting momentum in the market uh, before bioglass got a foothold, even though the first studies on bioglass were done first and, and it's been proven to work better later on. There's doubtless a whole other podcast about how finance gets in the way of healthcare. But let's get back to the applications of bioglass. Well, the really exciting one is there's a new product just been released in the US, which is in the form of cotton wool. I mean, it's glass, but it looks like cotton wool. Um, So it's a very highly fast dissolving um, glass wool. And uh, it's for diabetic foot ulcers. So, or chronic wounds. And these are wounds that don't heal 
under usual treatment and they've had patients where they haven't they've had these wounds open for more than a year and they've even started to get infected and things like that and uh so what they do is they put they sort of pack this cotton wool bioglass into the hole of the patient uh, into the wound then put the dressing over the top and then three days later they take the dressing off and the glass is dissolved they put a new new bit in and put another dressing back on and within weeks it um the the wounds were healed they even um they even managed to um heal uh, a racehorse that had a massive gash across its chest that, um, that they were about to put down and they thought no hang on let's try it wow let's try this first so that's quite a thing that's quite <laughs> a thing so what's your involvement in it? What are you doing with it? Well, I started working with Larry Hench, actually. He gave me the mission to create the first porous bioglass scaffold for bone regeneration. So it was a, instead of having this powder, what surgeons really want is a, a sort of framework, a three-dimensional framework that the cells can go into and attach to and start laying down the building blocks of, of, of the bone. And then it biodegrades over time. So we successfully did that, but the uh, the medical device companies weren't so interested. They didn't feel it gave enough of a of a commercial jump over just having regular bioglass. Uh, so the surgeons wanted it, but the the sort of amount it would have cost to get it to product, the companies didn't think it was worth doing. So um, so then I realised right, okay, well we need something that's going to be even more revolutionary than that. So I um, um, started working on this idea of bouncy bioglass. So um, there's nothing currently available to surgeons now that can share load with the host tissue. So there's no sort of scaffolding or anything that they can put in that will take or share load with the host bone. So if you have a big, so at the moment the bioglass is used in there's so holes in bone generally, not if there's a big piece of bone missing. And one, there's a big unmet clinical need for um, bad trauma where um, they call it non-union, where the bones don't go back together no matter what you do to them, basically. So if we had something with the the power of bioglass, but that could share load with the with the bones, with the, with the bones already there, then it could be really revolutionary. So we've been working on that and we've managed to do it in the fact that we now have this uh, material that has the the two properties the the stimulation of bone growth and the ability to take cyclic load and we do that through um, well we make the scaffolds through 3d printing but the magic part of it is really what they're made of so in order to get this mix of properties we had to we have to grow the glass through chemistry and grow the polymer at the same time so that the glass network and the polymer network actually grow together. So some people might say, well, how's that different to a composite? Well, of course, a composite is where you have, you might have your inorganic or your glassy component, and you might have your um, matrix, a polymer matrix giving you flexibility. So something like you know, glass fiber composites or carbon fiber composites. The problem with that for this medical application is that if you imagine you've got your bioactive glass fibers or particles, they're the things that the cells want to interact with. If you embed them in a in a polymer, in a plastic matrix, then they're not going to see them. So you might get some mechanical properties, but you're not going to get your, your bioactive properties in the stimulation. 
so the idea of the hybrid is that these these intimate relationships are so finely interlocked that when the cells come along and, and attach to the surface, they see the bioglass and, and the polymer at the same time. So it literally bounces. If you threw it on the table, it would bounce, right? Yeah, it's just like a you know a kid's power ball, you know, those little round bouncy balls, you know, and you, you can bounce it on a desk and it'll bounce around like that. And so, yeah, you can hit it with a hammer. Um, you can even cut it in half and stick it back together in a self-heal. Brilliant. Although, unfortunately, it doesn't self-heal 100%. So it only gets about half of its strength back. But, but it's fun to watch. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, what is, but there's obviously there's there's no... Because it will dissolve, right? We couldn't use this for glass in windows. That's right. No, I mean, uh, you know, when, when we saw the self-healing, we thought, oh, mobile phone screens. Uh, but yeah, you don't really want to buy degradable. <laughs> <laughs> At least not one that degrades while you're using it. Yeah. No, I can think of some companies that might like the idea of it biodegrading, then you have to buy a new one. Yeah, biodegradable, if you could press a button and make it biodegrade, oh, that'd be good. Yeah, that would be good. I've had enough of it. Yeah. Now it can biodegrade. Yeah. <laughs> when are we going to see bouncy bioglass being used? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer. Uh we're doing our best, and we do have some uh, investment in into the research group to accelerate its translation. Uh, so soon, but soon in medical devices is uh, not always everyone soon. <laughs> if a phone screen that biodegrades at the touch of a button seems a little far-fetched right now, there's another thing that Julian's team are working on that wouldn't feel out of place on the pages of a science fiction novel. So the bioglass nanoparticles, because it delivers the ions, uh, they go inside the cell, delivering these active ions. The great thing about glass is you can almost select any element from the periodic table and put it in the glass. And most of those people have found a therapeutic benefit of. For example, strontium promotes bone growth and slows down the bone resorption in osteoporosis. Zinc kills cancer cells without killing the happy cells. Uh, and so we've been making some nanoparticles so made of bioglass uh, and with the same idea is that they can deliver these ions. So, uh, but with the benefit that they can deliver these ions at a controlled rate. So when they're sort of 80 nanometers inside, they can float around the body and they can uh, taken up by cells and then they dissolve inside the cells and release, the body, uh, release those ions. While bioglass does have these amazing properties that make it great at triggering biological processes, there is still some risk of infection. And the dream is bioactive glass, with antimicrobial properties. In researching for this podcast, I found a paper whose lead author was Martina Mikalska. We'll come to the paper shortly, but I'll let her introduce herself. I'm for another week a postdoctoral researcher in Photonic Innovations Lab uh, at University College London. And starting the next week, I'll be um, a lecturer in nanomanufacturing in the new UCL East Campus. I don't know if everyone knows uh, about it, but this is like the biggest extension since the UCL has been founded. It's supposed to bring researchers from different disciplines to work together, as well as some uh, industrial partners to also facilitate um, work across sectors. So the, actually what's nice about this, uh, it's uh, so the building I'm going to be at, it's called Manufacturing Features Lab. This is where we share space with me coming from mechanical engineering and other researchers from chemical, biochemical engineering and chemistry to work together uh, on addressing some of the big questions 
um, that we are dealing with at the moment. Uh, my personal interest uh, is in uh, finding new technologies to find the, the growing issue of antimicrobial resistance. Uh, so my background is, I should maybe say, uh, is in chemical engineering uh, as well as in laboratory medicine. Uh, so, and I actually did my um, my PhD in physics on working on quantum dots and to use uh, those uh, optical fluorescent probes for breast cancer imaging. And because uh, I have this uh, double uh, double training, uh, what I've been practicing since then is really working across disciplines and and doing really nanomaterial engineering to address healthcare-related issues, uh, but also I'm interested in energy applications and how can we make some passively working technologies but without energy to uh, make buildings uh, a bit cooler, for instance. And this is how I got into the project that I'm at now, to work on uh, smart windows uh, that would exhibit some multifunctional character. By this, I mean, will be glare-free, so to will be anti-reflective for a better uh, visual effects, but also would be self-cleaning, which is a, a big, big issue. And you think about um, uh, tall buildings uh, where there are some uh, cost analysis that uh, it takes basically the cleaning of such windows uh, within the first five years when the building is built uh, costs the same as, uh, as uh, actually installing those windows. So it's a big issue. And then uh, the third, probably the most exciting part, is uh, to regulate the amount of solar energy that comes into the building depending on the temperature outside. Uh, so uh, say if it's cold, you let everything in, but when it's hot, you would like to reflect, stop that infrared coming into the building. So this is this is where I came into with my skills to this project and to, uh, well, the paper that that you wanted to discuss. I was talking to Martina in her busy office at UCL, University College London, and the office is in the top floor of the UCL building and all around her is the glass of the windows which taper upwards and if it wasn't for the cityscape outside the windows you could be forgiven for thinking you were on a boat. Anyway, that might explain some of the noises you hear as the conversation goes on. The paper is entitled Bio-Inspired Multifunctional Glass Surfaces Through Regenerative Secondary Mask Lithography. Essentially, it's a paper about altering the surfaces of glass for applications such as fending off unwanted bacteria, something that's especially important in medical settings. Yes, yeah, so this is the method that um, we've developed um, in order to um, uh, enable glass nanostructuring. So I should start by saying that although there is lots of things that is made of glass, we have it in many everyday uh, uh, products, like when it comes to its um, uh, structuring, any kind micro nanostructuring that would induce some properties, uh, this is extremely difficult. And this is for the reason that uh, we have this lot of things from, made of glass because it's highly um, robust material uh, in terms of uh, it's, it's, it has great thermal stability as well great uh, chemical stability. Uh, and the same excellent uh, properties of glass make is uh, very difficult to deal with. So um, we knew that, uh, that by uh, nanopatterning, so basically engraving in the glass, some nanoarrays of particular geometries, think about nanocon or nanopillar, 
um, that has, uh, say, 500 nanometers height and is on the pitch even smaller than that, say 100 nanometers, we start to see some great uh, properties from the material like optical properties and the reflective properties. So, so there is a big need to do that. And this is extremely difficult. So we needed to think like, uh, yeah, okay, so how, how to do it? And so there was a need for a new method. And uh, uh, myself and other researchers came together um, to work out how to do it. So the secondary mask lithography, in order to pattern something, typically what we do, uh, we use a mask. Uh, so say, uh, uh, so what we basically did, we took some um, polymer micelles uh, that we just spin coated on, on top of the surface. And this is very rapid. We're talking about 20 seconds and the pattern with that nanoscale resolution is there. But the, the, then once we have this pattern where this micellar bumps uh, uh, create uh, uh, create this, uh, this this layout, we need to transfer that into a glass. And this is what was the problem because what we typically do, we use some uh, glass etching chemistry. We do it uh, typically in the clean room uh, uh, in a tool called uh, reactive ion etcher. So we, we, we have a chemicals uh, that we ionize, we create a plasma that then in a dry way uh, edges the glass uh, around the pattern. The trouble with this pattern was that because it's it's organic, it's polymer, uh, and it's only 20 nanometers tall, so it's extremely small, uh, it's, it's not very uh, durable. So that would allow you to, to get, say, 200 nanometer tall structures. And so it happens that that this magnificent optical properties of uh, of glass uh, uh, are they controlled by aspect ratio of the features. So, uh, so the again the idea was how do we make it robust? So we came up with a process uh, that uh, during the uh, the etching itself, the chemistry works in a way that there is lots of byproducts. And this bioproduct, uh, it's uh, let's let's call it. There is a sticky polymer uh, that uh, we took an advantage of, and uh, and it started to deposit on that uh, polymer micelle, protecting it. And and you can imagine that this is chemically more chemically speaking, it's Teflon-like structure, and this is what uh, what fluorine that we use to etch glass doesn't react with. So we were able to protect the mask and let the etching to progress. So this is the secondary mask. Uh, this is this is the mystery of the secondary mask, and and this elegant trick uh, allowed us to to achieve what we wanted. In order to showcase the potential of this, Martina and her colleagues tailored some of these glass features to achieve omnidirectional anti-reflectivity, self-cleaning, and unique antibacterial activity towards Staphylococcus aureus, a bacteria very commonly linked to upper respiratory tract infections. So first of all, I should say that uh, by combination of, of different masking, so say uh, we can tune the, the pitch, the, therefore the spacing, uh, the center to center distance of the features. And now with this method, uh, we, can, we can tune also the height of the structures, therefore uh, you can have uh, nanocons, you can have nanopillars, you can have some nano 
pencils on your uh, on your glass, and that will, in different ways, control the interaction of glass with. We talk a lot about light, but they can also inter- uh, control the interaction with uh, water, uh, other liquids like oils, uh, and uh, what I am particularly interested in, uh, bacteria. And uh, and this is quite cool. Uh, so so we need this kind of um, this kind of level of control uh, in order to first uh, fundamentally understand how these things operate, because lots of phenomena um, are still um, under investigation, uh, to to then use that as a rational design for specific applications. So uh, so think about mobile display. Uh, so, uh, well, we, we've all been experiencing the consequences of pandemic and we've been like more now become more sensitive to, to disinfecting and, uh, uh, and to contamination that comes in the high touch surfaces. And when you think about like display, for instance, the such structuring not only could give you anti-reflective properties and increase the transparency, so which is also, by the way, independent on, on incident angles, so you can move your object and, and you can still read what it's, what it's written there. Um, uh, but, but you have to think also that these optical properties will be preserved um, only where, you know, like that will be dependent on the uh, on the environment of use. So when you put your fingers that have some oils and other uh, contaminants like bacteria, then this proper, the optical properties will be affected. So there is a need for multifunctionality, clearly. And uh, this kind of structure can accommodate a couple of things at the same time. So obviously it goes beyond this, but within healthcare settings, it's, there are plenty of applications. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Any surface, actually. Um in a, a hospital um, uh, could be targeted. So especially uh, surgical sites, they are all made of different type of materials that, uh, well, that we should maybe say that two things, one that do not allow to, 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 to stick bacteria to them. So, so we have the repellent effect and the other that kill in situ. And I should mention that these surfaces could be designed to do uh, one thing or the other. Uh, so that's quite cool, uh, but the beauty of it is that uh, since this is physical method, because we apply physical forces, imagine the the, the nano spikes that are order of magnitude uh, uh, smaller than bacteria, that t- typical bacteria, bacteria adhere to the sur- uh, to the surfaces, and uh, and then uh, upon the induced forces, there is a me- mechanical stress uh, on cells, and then they may be either pierced or deform and rupture, uh, or so much stress uh, will be induced that they will program themselves to death. Uh, and again, the beauty of this is that you don't use any chemicals. So uh, we believe that uh, since these surfaces work through so many physical means that it would be evolutionary difficult to overcome that and and uh, and actually induce any antimicrobial resistance, which is quite cool. How easy is that to replicate? How how quickly could this be something that we're seeing out out there in glass manufacturers everywhere? Well, there are some uh, startups and some like also uh, well uh, some companies that already are doing what these are called MoFi structures, maybe on a smaller aspect ratio, uh, but. Uh, 
things like this are are happening. And actually, as we speak, we are also collaborating uh, with industrial partners like NSG Pilkington uh, here in the UK, uh, where we're looking how to bring these technologies um, uh, as products uh, into um, yeah into the market. Uh, well, one thing is that uh, that you can structure glass uh, directly, but you can also look at the routes to retrofit what exists, because typically we we should mind that you know, when we when we install the windows, we don't want to <laughs> exchange that too often, right? We're talking about uh, decades, if not longer, uh, of utilizing those. So, but we can. Uh, so, so what we are working uh, on as well is how do you make it maybe in some uh, polymers uh, with the adhesive on the other side and uh, and trying to develop methods for that that will be scalable uh, so so yeah this is this is something that's uh, currently ongoing and uh, uh, i've just uh, come back from the conference uh, 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 material research society where there was a lot of work about uh, uh, about scaling up the nanomanufacturing because this is also we're talking about wearable electronics and uh, other stuff like that and 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 there's lots of discussion uh, ongoing on um, going into nanoimprint lithography roll to roll uh, processes so this is something that industry uh, is looking at and starting to pick up uh, on so uh, so i think it should be um uh, it, it should be fairly soon when we start seeing uh, stuff like that on the market. What are you most excited about with this? Well, the ability uh, of self-disinfecting uh, and uh, and protecting our health and environment from this unwanted contaminations, and, uh, and that's that's definitely the closest to my heart uh, as a uh, as a trained diagnostician and uh, material engineer. Like uh, I. I and, and I'm interested from like both sides, from material side, it's like there, there are still challenges. How do you structure in a scalable ways materials? Uh, but also from the bacteria side, like how do they sense the the, the, the structures? Like, uh, like how these interactions uh, uh, are happening on molecular level? Uh, so uh, if we if we are able to understand that, then we can take uh, this this even farther. And I may uh, throw here some uh, like exotic studies uh, seems far fetched, but but actually you can start start maybe uh, thinking about how to study evolution by using this kind of uh, structures or like uh, some some work on microbiome. So when you think about uh, well. When you put some mixtures of cells on 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 such structures, they 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 may start to compete as as it happens, like in the environment, and then uh, you may have some nice uh, system to to look at in terms of how the system evolves uh, and uh, organizes itself. So, uh, and uh, and working on microbiome is an, another like a huge uh, uh, hugely growing field. Um, uh, in research, so I'm like really excited to connect both ends. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I, I, so we just, um, you're obviously, you've said you're at UCL, you're in London, it's a busy city, we just heard a siren going past. Do you, you know, when you're walking around London, do you 
look at the glass and sort of think about the different aspects of it or is it just sink into the background like it does for everyone absolutely absolutely and especially now in the pandemic like you can see it everywhere you know i was uh, uh i was uh, doing a grocery shopping and you know we have all this uh, uh plastic dividers or like going to the bank or like uh, anywhere and I can see okay this has like lots of cracks this looks dirty and uh, and you know these are the places where you would rather have something actually when someone sneezes and that that bug like travels like onto that surface like you would like to actually induce kidding and 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 keep the surface clean so i can see totally like uh, already like uh, i'm actually probing for the application of the technologies we are uh, developing and and uh, and i have to see say that there is a huge need definitely for that if you're interested in glassware in pharmaceuticals you may have heard of valor glass a product designed by the company corning to prevent cracks and reduce contamination in pharmaceutical packaging. This glass and other strengthened glass products from different companies have been particularly helpful in the last couple of years during the pandemic because they can also withstand very low temperatures and strong impacts. So these strong glasses have been used to produce the vials that the life-saving vaccines have been carried in. Martina suggested another possible use of specialised glass, which might be particularly useful for those of us who aren't quite ready to give up the masks yet. At this scales, uh, well, we we all pretty familiar with the effect of lotus leaf. Uh, so we have some structuring that that between the structures the air is uh, is entrapped and that um, basically um, helps to prevent water penetration into the bottom of the structure. So we have this uh, this this water that creates the, the the little balls that bounces off the structure. So we have this, uh, and we can buy similar coatings now, like on Amazon, and spray it on our shoes or whatever to have something uh, very water repellent. But when you do this kind of structuring at this scale, you can also um, induce the repellency of the micro droplets, so like uh, fogging effects. And we're now all very familiar by when wearing masks and our sunglasses, how annoying it is <laughs> to <laughs> look uh, through the glasses and have all this condensation happening. So guess what? The structures can also prevent that. And uh, we, we publish a, a, a nice, uh, fun, like lots of fundamental study on that in, in last year in Nature Communications with a group um, that has been investigating the condensation phenomena for for a long time uh, from Paris, the group of Professor Kerr. So if anyone is interested, I also encourage to look at that because it's uh, it's it's quite cool to see how it can be designed. Oh, that's amazing! That makes me um, makes me want to get you to design some goggles for me for diving. Exactly. <laughs> the other night, I found myself in the cinema watching everything, everywhere, all at once. I mentioned that because it was a very busy cinema and I highly recommend that you find time to go and see that film if you haven't already. But the idea of glasses that don't steam up while you're wearing a mask in a busy cinema seemed like a very good invention to me. But glasses also played some really important roles in the fight against COVID-19 and you can read about some of those and a whole lot more in James Dacey's article A Transparent Tool for a Fairer Planet which you can find in the Physics World magazine this June. For next month's podcast, we'll return to particle physics as we celebrate the 10 years 
since the discovery of the Higgs boson. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.